Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Hi, Masahide. Thank you for joining Crypto Unstacked. Hi, nice to really, it's great to be here. Yeah, so you're the founder and senior principal at Bastion Trading Group. But before getting to the history of Bastion, I wanted to uh, get to back to your background. And um, so you studied at Yale, did you? Yes, I did. Yeah, somehow I got in and somehow I got out. So, uh, yeah. Fantastic. I've, I've, it was quite some time ago, actually. What did you major in? Apparently it was economics. Right. Uh, fun fact, I have actually been to New Haven many, many uh, moons ago, and uh, it wasn't the fanciest of towns, but uh, Yale looked pretty impressive as a campus and uh, buildings. So so you must have had some fun. New Haven's got some good pizza, though. I have to admit, they have some good pizza. <laughs> so what piqued your interest in, uh, in traditional finance at that point as an undergrad? Well, going back then, so when you go and you get your uh, school newspaper, there is, I guess, recruitment for these uh, traditional investment banks, right? I think these are schools that they tend to want to recruit from. So um, they advertise heavily in the school newspaper, right? So, you know, you, you go to the uh, dining hall and you have a few minutes and, you know, you want to, I don't know, catch the, the scores of some random game or something and you, you open it up and, and there you see these full page ads being taken up by these companies that have like two random names on it, like a Morgan Stanley or or like a Goldman Sachs or, or something, right? And you're looking at it and you're like, oh, okay, what, what are these companies? I've, I've never heard of them before. Like, you know, I only know companies like Coca-Cola, Xerox, and those kind of things, right? So, yeah, yeah so back then, you know, we, we didn't really know uh, what they were when I was a freshman, right? I was like, what are these companies? And then by the time you get to become like a, a upperclassman, like a junior in university, then you start seeing your friends, right? Start going to these, being recruited at these companies. And the pay packages that they tell you don't look particularly too bad. And because your friends are doing it, kind of saying, okay, maybe, maybe I'll just do it too and just, just be part of the gang, right? So I just applied when I was a junior to these summer internships. And somehow I ended up working for Goldman over one summer in my junior year. To be honest, I absolutely hated it. Oh, wow. <laughs> but then um, I thought back then, you know, I didn't want to be a doctor because I didn't want to go to med school. It was a lot of work. Um, I, I thought, well, maybe I want to be a lawyer, but I figured that a lawyer ends up working for investment bankers anyway. 
And then I didn't want to work the hours of an investment banker. So then I thought, okay, what's the next best thing was to just apply for sales and trading divisions. So, so despite the fact that I didn't particularly like it, I just kind of kept at it. And then I ended up joining a UBS in Tokyo right after school. So the internship at Goldman's was at, in the, on the trading side, sales and trading? Associate? Yeah, it was. It was. Great. And then I found out later that every trading floor and, and every bank, it's a collection of people. It's a collection of company culture. And I came to realize that there's different cultures among different companies and even within companies, different groups. I figured I, I should just still give it a go and see what happens. So I ended up joining, a, as I said, a different firm and somehow many years later, I ended up here. Yeah. So why Tokyo? Are you Japanese by background? Yeah, I am. Right. So at the time, right, because I can somewhat proficiently speak Japanese, they wanted to have kind of more, I guess, culturally similar, even though I, was, I grew up, I mean, not in Japan, right, but at least I could speak the language. And I think that turned out to be a bit of an advantage. So, so yeah, I, I got hired. Um, and they always need people at, at that time, right? Many, many years ago, they, I think they, they needed headcount in Tokyo. So yeah, that, that's where I ended up. Fantastic. And then, so that was straight into a trading role or like a rotational uh, internship or sort of introduction? Or how did you get into the trading side of UBS? So I applied for the sell, in the sales and trading division. And then I think during interviews, they were asking me whether I wanted to go into sales or, or going into trading. And, and at the time, I, I thought I wanted to be a trader, at least in the beginning. So I just kind of just said, I don't like talking to people. So just put me in trading. So I, I kind of found some way to like... Get to where you wanted to go. I tried to use the incompetence in one section would force me into a, into a department type of thing. <laughs> and that was into the equity derivatives uh, division. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And yeah, I mean, I, I too, I think you come from a similar background of single stocks derivatives trading, right? And so you went straight into sort of single stocks and indices, or were you sort of more single stocks? And that's kind of where you trained up? So I was part of the, in the when back then, I was trading um, single stock options as opposed to index options. So, so I had to do with all the names and, and, the, and the companies and, and such. So Cool. I used to read, there were some funny books and stories around the uh, index rollers. I think it was called uh, a book called Dirty Americans by Ben Meserich, which detailed this Gaijins or foreigners that live in Tokyo that basically they're all index traders and they all sort of have these huge role positions on and and the is it the uh, the Japanese the index provider in Japan would sort of throw one stock out and put another one in in the in the rollover and these guys sort of had the uh, you know would sort of club together and take humongous positions betting on uh, on these roles does that sound familiar or am I imagining that? Yes. So basically, in the height of the tech bubble back in 2000, uh, this is actually before my time. I joined after this event a couple of years or like a year later. Right? So what happened was the, the, Nikkei, the, the Nikkei index for, for years carried these pre-bubble and, and bubble stocks. right? So they re actually represented a huge swath of what we consider at the time the old economy. But then what they wanted to do was because, as we maybe see, see now in the S&P and everything with Amazon, with your fangs, right? Like there, there was really no fangs back, back then. But in the U.S., they already had something called NASDAQ, which, which was gaining a lot of popularity versus the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Right? So in Japan, the Nikkei, they wanted to change to become more, more techy, like a, NAS, like, a, like a hybrid NASDAQ. 
So added the two, so it's called the Nikkei two two five average or two twenty five average, right? So you, as you say, right, usually you find one or two names going in or out a particular quarter, for example. I remember the timelines that they come in, right? But this one, they wanted to make a big splash, so they had like a half their index go out and half of it go in. Right, wow. which is huge. And at the time, basically, the types of rebalancing that the buy side, like the major pension insurance funds, whoever indexing, right, they didn't really care too much at that time on price impact of their activities to rebalance. So everyone knew that they were going to rebalance and due to some, rig- I think at the time, more rigid rules around when to rebalance. Every bank actually knew when they were going to rebalance, which yeah. is literally at the close of that day. Right. So you have 112 names probably going for sale and 112 names going to be bought. Right. I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. So basically, obviously, if you know that every bank would, for lack of a better word, preposition themselves to do this. Right. And it basically, yeah. I think for every single department in Japan, basically more, I think, trip, I mean, eclipsed their budget for the year. I think it like tripled for everyone for that particular event. So I think that's the one that Ben Mesrich is, I think it's Ugly Americans was referring to at that time. Phenomenal. It's a great story. And then you went on from UBS to uh, to sort of other banks like JP Morgan, is that right? And some hedge funds and then into crypto? Yeah. So after working at UBS for a little while, so I, I was trading not only single stock options, but convertible bonds. I actually went to trade in the U.S. a bit with UBS. So I was trading um, U.S. and like Latin American equities for, for a while. I mean, equity derivatives for a while. And then later on, I ended up joining J.P. Morgan in Hong Kong, right, in 2007. And then I left to join a convertible bond hedge fund uh, towards the end of 2008. And then I started to get together with some of my, um, my ex-colleagues at J.P. and some friends in 2014 to start trading our own capital. So I left the hedge fund and started trading on our own. And that was the formation of Bastion, was it? Or was that another business? Yeah, that was, I guess you could say, where our current partners and people I work with today are, are still around as cool. well. And then to go get past that, I think, you know, in 2017, we started entering to entering the trading crypto. Right. So, and what were your sort of, you know, what were your drivers that got you into that? Was it yourself kind of hearing more and more about Bitcoin? Was it your partners? Uh, was it kind of you guys as a collective or? I don't actually remember to be honest i think one day we were just sitting around i don't think we had much to do like for a couple of weeks and one of us it's not me right but one of my partners or someone that he they were looking up this thing called i mean to me at the time this thing called bitcoin i was like ah, what is this thing like well, whatever right and then uh we started looking at this exchange called bitmex right and i'm like bitmex i'm like what is this like bitcoin mexico like what what is this right so uh <laughs> Um, I'm like, I'm not going to put into any Mexican exchange. That's what I thought first, right? <laughs> Little did I know what it actually meant. And then, you know, we looked at it and we saw that there were derivatives. We were looking at the spot markets. We started looking at like a bit stamp, I think maybe cracking. I don't remember, right? And looking at the spot and, and we saw a huge spread and we're like, okay, maybe we make money. So we tried it out and lo and behold, I can get into a long story about how we, were, we thought we were going to get scammed through all of this. But at the end of it, it worked. And then after that, we found a lot of opportunities, both in spot arbitrage and continued to like this kind of swap and futures trading that we would generally be short and being long for the spot and collecting the, the funding, right? So yeah, yeah that, that's been kind of our bread and butter for really four years now. Yeah. And so in terms of Bastion, do you guys still have the TradFi trading business going as well? Or are you all into crypto or what percentage kind of is kind of across both? So we do have 
small bits of money in TradFi. But I mean, really, about nine, I think right now, probably 98, 97, 98% of our funds are deployed in crypto-related strategies. Right? So our TradFi positions are all kind of residual, uh, residual from the past, uh, from earlier in 2020, when the whole market crashed. So we kept up some strategies there, but I mean, we're pretty much all, all in crypto. Right. And do you guys do, what else do you do outside of the kind of the funding trades? Are you in a, do you trade options or are you an OTC trader as well? Or are you just kind of principle in, in nature? So our strategies, usually we do a lot of cash and carry arbitrage. Um, so that, that's basically shorting perpetual futures buying spot. We do go into DeFi as well. We go into AMM and pools where we try to, I guess you could say, actively manage the exposures in the pool. So it's kind of minimizing or kind of, like you say, like blending out the impermanent loss over time versus the the yield farming gains that, that we get. So we do that. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So I'm trying to figure out myself, trying to understand how firms sort of do exactly that, sort of have enter into DeFi pools. And if we put the whole safety smart contract risk aside on the DeFi pools, because obviously as a trading firm like yourselves, you could have your own in-house coders and auditors that look at the code. Now, now everyone can't do that. And, you know, I think very rarely do I have I heard of market-making firms who have their own sort of smart contract developers who look through codes and you kind of rely on, you rely on trust of the pool and the auditors of who have audited that project. But I wanted to focus more on how you manage the risk within the pool once it starts trading. So for example, if you go into a, a new pool because it's ETH, uh, USD, even on CoinFlex, for example, you know, which I know you guys have AMM'd in the past and, and currently and whatever, which is fantastic. How do you manage the delta risk of that pool externally in the sense that do you just kind of rely on random walk within the pool saying, you know what, I'll just leave it in there for a month and see how I get on? Or depending on the, the delta of the pool position, do you then hedge that out kind of on future somewhere else? Oh, that's a good question. So I think so. This is really managing what ultimately when you chart it out, however way, this very much looks like if you are trading in options, right? You're actually kind of short, like straddles and strangles, right? In a way. So Mm -hmm. your risk is changing. And so even when I I was working at a bank, the way we decided to choose how to hedge this was kind of up to us, right? So it's a guesswork and it's artwork. I mean, there's a bit of science to it, so maybe you can be a bit disciplined on the timing of rebalancing, but really it's a lot of artwork actually, because at any point in time, let's say that in, even in our mind, we're perfectly hedged, right? When the moment we go into a pool, the moment it move, the price moves, right? You're taking on exposure, right? On one asset or the other, right? So there's a lot of different ways to do it. Generally speaking, it's kind of when the market doesn't move and you're getting the farming yields and it hasn't moved too much, you're just kind of lazy. You're like, yeah, we're just not bother hedging it sometimes, right? You might get a bit complacent. But I would say in general, in general, I mean, we probably hedge as in we balance, right? We look at the components of the AMM pool, what we have, and then we look to go back to the, you know, kind of a very similar ratio when we first started. We would look and do that unit exposure probably once, uh, probably once every two days at the least. So, but I mean, we won't do it so often, but maybe it's once a day, once every two days, right? For a regular small investor, that in, a, okay. in a especially a Ethereum chain, that, I mean, with gas, that can get quite expensive, right? But you know, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, because from a 
fee perspective, I mean, you obviously, and with a maker-taker model in futures, I guess if you're a professional firm or professional trader, you're better off hedging your portfolio delta in uh, on a futures exchange, right? Even though the, the underlying delta might be on a um, swap pool. But it's, it's interesting that you are, not a lot of people kind of view the AMM activity as a short option strategy, which is fantastic. I mean, more and more people are learning about it now, you know, which is great. So I guess what you're saying is you're hedging your overall gamma kind of every two days as if you're running an options portfolio, essentially. So you would decide of your negi gamma in this example, how much of your negi gamma you're hedging is what you're saying based on kind of view of the market and your overall delta across the business. That's right. So it is, uh, I mean, these farms, a lot of these, well, not every one of them, but a lot of these farms will give you a very nice, healthy excess return, even if you hedge that, you call your negative, your negative gamma. So it's quite interesting, actually. So Good. Fantastic. Um, I wanted to move on to talk about stable coins because they're very topical. There was a kind of a bunch of news overnight about it. Where do you think the importance of stable coins are going here? And I mean, right now it feels very, very important in crypto. And do you think do you see this, you know, where do you see it going for crypto and where do you see regulation kind of impact in this whole trading process for crypto traders? I, I think it really depends on what side of the, I mean, if they're looking at particular regulations on it's a systemic risk, right? For example, and you know the kind of regulations that that they may require probably would be about how much. Uh, so effectively, it may be that one would require some certain amount of, say, core equity. You kind of treat it like a like almost like a bank, right? So you need a certain amount. I mean, so you'll end up having this risk, these stupid or silly risk weighted. What is it? Asset ratios or, or all this stuff that they may have to abide to very similar to mm. a bank, right? So I think that's kind of the stuff that they do. So from that perspective, maybe it's okay, just because you could just raise um, you could these stablecoin issuers can actually just raise equity capital for buffer that they possibly need. And so maybe that part may not be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. But always regulations, how rational what I said might be, right? Like. I mean, governments generally tend to skirt it up when it comes to regulation. So um, I'm not quite optimistic about, about whatever comes now. Now, if they really want to start controlling things like, you know, the ability to transfer stable coins, for example, from one point to another and things like that, and that, that's opening up a, a big can of worms. I, I don't know exactly how, how that would work. But again, what you may actually find is you may find, um, like, for instance, stable coins still be okay. And then we'll find ourselves basically depositing everything into, like, say, a MakerDAO, for example, right? And then just using DAI to move things around because I don't think they can really regulate that, right? So overall, it definitely makes all our lives harder, definitely, a bit. But I think the cryptocurrency industry has definitely brushed off probably what's potentially a lot worse than this. Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, you know, with Evergrande Remit kind of resuming their coupon payments to, I think, international holders now as well, as I last heard. That side of it's dying down now. Now we're going away from tail risk to more to reg risk again. So let's see how this plays out. And it's a little bit concerning when they go, go when the SEC goes after Uniswap and DeFi protocols. But like, as you say, crypto has been very, very resilient and, be, and been through things like this you know, several times in the last 10 years, 13 years. So yeah, I have every confidence in, in crypto to survive this as well. So, and this is the final thing, Masahide, was... Uh, have you guys got into the trend of uh, VC investing, like other market-making HFT firms that uh, we've spoken to? Not as, I mean, probably not as much as probably in retrospect we would have liked. I mean, 
we've like built out some things ourselves, but I wouldn't necessarily call them exactly uh, a VC. But I think it's something that we're definitely looking to go into a little bit more that um, I think we have a bit more bandwidth to look at it. I do see a bit of benefit of trading firms going in in a limited capacity into some VC investments. I think especially those that may be, what I can say is kind of core or beneficial to trading activity, right? So I think that that looks kind. I think that can look quite interesting over time, but it's pretty hard to figure out which ones flying, which ones crash as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Obviously, as I've said before, it's, it never existed in my time in trading. I mean, you would be unheard of. I mean, people would look at you crazy if you said you're a market maker, but also a uh, VC investor. Now, you know, one of the HFT firms I spoke to uh, were pretty sensible because they said they invested into projects where they would be a liquidity provider or take liquidity from, so they understood it. So that model kind of made sense. And then there's the other model of market-making firms or trading firms that just invest across all kinds of different types of token projects, which makes very little sense to me at that point. But it's clearly very popular because uh, pretty much everyone seems to be doing it now. So it's a new trend and uh, we'll see how it uh, pans out. Yeah, I, think it's, I think partially for a lot of people, it's aspirational, right? Like, I mean, in trading, we are concentrated in making fiat and making and optimizing and being efficient into making every every single cent, right? Or Satoshi, whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. That you, you come out of, especially a year like this, you know, your coffers are quite full, right? And then you have the, the firepower to say that you're going into VC investments, right? I think it's one of those aspirational things that sometimes traders want to be in. And I don't see anything wrong with that, right? In fact, those kind of firms are, is a VC operator, Right. I mean, if you have a firm like that, that doesn't exactly, who also treats it partially as being aspirational, I think that's actually a very good counterpart to have than your regular VC firm, actually, because they're genuinely interested. It's not exactly part of their job, right? They want to learn and they're thinking how they could fit their business inside of it to make two things, to make everything grow. So I think, you know, I think there's a lot of advantages of having trading firms in the capital stack because they, they do offer a different view on things just from where they stand to what they're trying to achieve, generally speaking, at least, you know, from what I can tell. And they have a yeah. different angle to it. So, yeah, I mean, that it totally makes sense. I think mutually. Fantastic. Masa, always fascinating speaking to you. Thank you very, very much for your time. And thank you for coming on to uh, Crypto Unstacked. Okay. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. <laughs>